Welcome to the fourth episode of Doing Being Doing, a podcast uh, that is entirely dedicated to the practice of facilitation. You know, by the time we've reached the fourth episode, I have to tell you that there is just so much that I am personally learning from this conversation. I'm also unlearning from some of these conversations. I think some of the speakers, some of the guests have uh, pushed me to rethink and reframe uh, some of the words or styles that I have considered in facilitation. And I hope you're having a similar experience uh, as you listen to each of these episodes. Please do leave me your comments on our social media so that uh, you know I get to hear about it and tell us what what you think we should do more of in these podcasts. What kind of conversations would you like uh, to listen to? Today in the fourth episode, I have with me uh, a very dear friend and former colleague, Danny Hutley. Uh, Danny uh, has worked in the space of activism and change making and is currently focused on aspects of campaign strategy, impact measurement and movement building. So if you have been a facilitator or, you know, whether seasoned or a young facilitator, it doesn't matter. But if you've always been curious about facilitation and designing learning experiences in spaces of activism that largely require, uh, you know, learning outcomes that, that might sound like challenging power, challenging uh, systems of power, then this episode is something that you're going to enjoy. And I hope you have a great time. Danny, welcome to this episode. Hi, my name is Danny. I am British. Uh, I come from the UK, but I currently live in Melbourne in Australia. And I've had an interesting story, an interesting path to facilitation. I'm not convinced I have arrived at that point of facilitation, but we'll discuss that later. But mostly what I've been doing the past 10 years or so is working with activists, people that want to change the world in some way, either through being that person myself and being in those communities or by working with people whose job it is to support people that want to change the world in some way. What was that moment where, you know, something maybe in your gut or in your observations, you were like, I think this makes sense and I want to pursue this. I want to see where this takes me. Ah, well, interesting. It, it, it's difficult for me and f- I think for a lot of people because there wasn't one moment of transformation. And often when I'm telling the story to different people at the pub or something, I will, like, especially as someone that works with activists, we talk quite a lot to follow a structure of the narrative because it's a helpful campaigning tool. People will understand the narrative um, in a particular structure and then they react to it um, in a certain way. So when I'm at the pub and if I, I want to talk about this, I might pick a particular moment and say that I was growing up, that um, I had a certain set of ideas, that there was a challenge <laughs> and that the stakes were raised, there was a battle of some sort um, and then it resolved and I became a hero at the end of this. Um, right? So this is like a normal story structure, but that's really not how things happen with me and with a lot of people. Um, 
So I think there were there wasn't like a moment where this clicked or where it was a transformation, but it was like several things building up over years um, that led me to the facilitation space. And I would say only recently I've started calling myself a facilitator. And even then I get embarrassed saying it. <laughs> There's some imposter syndrome happening. Yeah, other things I've called it, like I, I might have called it like running a meeting before. Might have been the first time I was doing this. Uh, I might have called it training. Yeah, th this kind of thing I would have done before, before I would have called it the name facilitation. Dan, you spoke about how, you know, there's a sense of embarrassment, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, relating to the identity of a facilitator or an imposter syndrome that you might experience. Could you, could you unpack that a little bit? Because I feel we all have gone, on, gone through that journey and it happens to me sometimes, even now. So, Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's, it comes from, as a facilitator, you, you step into a space and you stake claim on that space in some way, even if, even if like, there's not much reason for you to be there. <laughs> Right. You can be someone coming in from the outside. Um, you can be in a position of privilege compared to other people. Um, but the act of facilitation is like taking the microphone or um, being the first person to speak on Zoom um, or to control things in some way. Um, and so I think you, I always go through that um, whenever I'm facilitating or call myself a facilitator. I always go through this moment of um, why do I deserve this? Why am I doing it? Why is it me, etc.? Um, and I think like earlier on, I might have that might have stopped me from doing it, and that might have been a good thing to stop me from doing it when I was younger. Um, now I'm leaning into it more and saying actually because I'm asking myself this, these questions, that's why I have some sort of stake in being able to come here. And, and take the space, like take space in order to give it away to people is how I think about it now. Um, so I'm much more comfortable saying, yes, I will facilitate this, or um, yes, I am a facilitator that can help here, um, because I know that I go through all of those questions and those doubts. Um, and that's a good thing, I think, if you're in this space. And very recently, you know, in the in the last episode, uh, the 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 person who came to speak to us spoke about this whole idea of do no harm, uh, and uh, some and you know we just spoke about uh, you know uh, some of the dilemmas that we have being able to relate to the identity of a facilitator and so on. I'm also curious about what are your sources of clarity and conviction as a facilitator. So while, while all of that other stuff exists, there's also yes. a place of strength and conviction uh, that guides your work, that, you know, uh, uh, gets you to join a room um, and create, create, a, create an important learning experience for everyone. I think it comes from um, experience. I, I, I think it comes from moments where, by choice or by accident, I've found myself facilitating a room and um, during that space, I've seen people transform in different ways. Um, and that's not saying that I am the person that transformed them in some way, but the space itself and the people in that space collectively came to a transformation. 
Um, and because of those experiences of that happening, I have a belief in the power of these kind of spaces. Um, and so that always gives me confidence in moving into these, this kind of thing, even when it's a group of people from different cultures and backgrounds who've never met each other before, um, who might have really different reasons for coming to the room. I've seen it happen so many times that through facilitated spaces, people can connect, their confidence can raise, and they can start taking on quite powerful institutions um, with the skills and the connection that they learn from that. Um, so yeah, it's experiences. But just like to give an example here, because I, I think I'm speaking too much in concepts. Um, and maybe to answer the question you asked first, the first time where I like, I really thought this is working, I think, was I was, um, I was a medical student in my past life. I no longer do any of that, but that's another story. Um, and I was also doing a lot of climate activism, like youth climate campaigning, um, and especially going to um, things like UN meetings and um, lobbying or holding protests with young people from around the world. Um, and after that, I came back to a group of medical students who were also international, and I was asked to hold a few training sessions with them about activism. Um, but this was the first time where instead of being asked us to hold the training sessions, I was also asked to weave between all of the other sessions. So they asked me to stick around to do like the framing after other people's sessions and before the next one. Um, and also things like just like arrange the breaks, practical things, etc. Um, and this is where like the first time where I saw instead of just a series of sessions where you do training on skills, the weaving of a narrative over the course of three days, the unexpected things that happen in and out of the session and people's emotional journey, you, you can play with these things and it can lead to an even stronger outcome than if you just, if you just train people in skills. So like that was the first moment for me where... Um, amazing things were happening. Um, people were like frustrated and wanted to um, change the agenda. And we, we did it. Um, people were struggling with levels of English and we scrapped some sessions. Um, people were suggesting things that we hadn't thought about and we went with that energy. Um, and at the end, people like felt this strong emotional bond together because we had done those things. Um, and we'd weaved in this narrative throughout of what is happening, how am I feeling, uh, who are we as a group. Um, so that was the first time it really came together for me. If you were to define who a facilitator is, how would you define a facilitator? I would first listen to the first episode of this podcast with Nadia <laughs> and, and listen to everything she says, which is amazing. Um, but then if I had to do it myself, then um, I think I think I would say that it, a facilitator is someone that is always thinking about the dynamic, um, not just about the content that's being delivered um, or the logistics of what's happening, but the dynamic of the group. Um, and I think you can be a facilitator just thinking about it, but 
to be a good facilitator, you have to be brave enough to prioritize that dynamic over anything else that happens and let the dynamic of the space are people becoming friends are there people that are left out are there people that are frustrated letting that change the content of what you're doing um, I think that's where good facilitation lies awesome thank you so much it continues to remain one of my favorite questions uh, <clears throat> to ask in an interview um so while you know uh, we've just defined the being of a facilitator let me ask you the same question but in a little different way what does a facilitator do mm there are a couple of ways to approach this right like what does a what does a facilitator do philosophically or what does a facilitator do practically what angle should i go with on that question can you take both <laughs> so a facilitator steps into a space they bring themselves to a space um they bring a certain presence um they then use that presence to manipulate the space of what's happening and um they create different forms like they create different things through the space right which is senses of comfort senses of discomfort senses of challenge um senses of urgency um or senses of letting go of urgency and through these different like ways of framing and tools they change the flow of events and also the dynamic of the group so a bit wordy but i i suppose like a facilitator takes space in order to give it away i've said that before right but but i i i think that's key a lot of people i talk to for very good reasons thinking think of facilitation as um stepping back like you're holding the microphone but you're reducing yourself in some way in order to, for other people to step up and speak and that's true in a sense right like the purpose of the facilitation is not that you have the microphone and you give your opinion uh, all the time like it's not a presentation but i think it's flawed in that unless you have your own presence and sense of self and personality that you inject into things um then the, you don't take the space in order to give it away you just create like a blank thing and people get confused <laughs> quite often Okay, a few things there. Like there are practical things as well. You can say like a, a facilitator spends weeks before a meeting thinking about the content, looks at looks at a set of presentations and thinks about um what are the types of people that are here and what are their emotional reactions going to be to each of these and therefore what order should we put them in? A facilitator works with all the presenters on how to present um helps people build their confidence before they present um and then just practically they point the way to the toilet they make sure the microphone's working right there's lots of these logistical things as well right um i'm also curious um because pretty much all the facilitators we've spoken to until now work in very very diverse context they work in context of young people they work in context of adults the working context of uh, tribal communities uh, so 
I'm also very curious in your journey, what got you to come to the space of activism and then stay here and build, build this career around it? Very curious about that. Sure. Um, I, I don't think I chose it. Um, I, and I don't think I chose it for good reasons as well. Um, as I said earlier, I, I was, I went to medical school and I was afraid and I was nervous. No one in my family had been to university before and I was put in this position, a very privileged position, but still I was scared of failure and of also managing money on my own and all sorts, right? Um, and the the story is I, I um, my flatmate was going to a speech about volunteering abroad and I didn't want to go because I thought I had to study all of the time. Um, and then just as she was leaving the house, my girlfriend at the time emailed me to say, oh, I'm going to Thailand next year. And so kind of in a bit of a selfish response, I kind of said, oh, I'll go abroad as well. And that was that was it, right? There was no like earnest movement into the activism space. It was about convenience and bitterness, <laughs> and like weird stuff like this. So I went to this volunteering um, presentation and I really liked it and was kind of blown over away, blown away by the earnestness of it and the do-gooding of it. Um, and I got involved. I like built them a website. I went to some national conferences and saw for the first time training happening. And I just really liked it. And I, I ended up like starting facilitating meetings and things like this. Um, and I saw, like, especially when I went abroad, I saw that the volunteering itself was kind of doing okay, but there were a lot of problems with it. It was a lot of white people going abroad and teaching. And there are tons and tons of problems with that. But I also saw um, the friendships that were created amongst peers actually being very transformative um, for the volunteers and the people they were meeting. And gradually over time that turned, I think through the people I met actually, um, who would teach me about their lives and struggles and what they were doing, that led from a sense of helping to a sense of standing with people in their struggles and trying to change the system in some way. Um, and it's, so it's a really gradual journey, like bit by bit by bit, my mind was changing as to how things change. It's not just giving, it's not just helping. Um, it's not even about community. Um, bit by bit, I, I was seeing how things could change through political power. Um, and that was something powerful and something I wanted to help with. And after all of these years, sometimes even today, I struggle to, for example, explain to my family what I do. You know? yes. uh, so to keep it simple, I just tell them I'm a, I'm a trainer and I train. And, and it's not far from the truth. It, 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 is, it is what it is. And I do train. Yeah. Right? Mm, how does, and I ask this question because, you know, uh, we've had a lot of uh, facilitators who are in their first two, three years of their career who, you know, try to uh, ask us that, 
how does one uh, create a sense of support system around oneself um and and i think for me the struggle the constant struggle to explain this especially when you come from a context like you know let's say india where people understand jobs like engineering and uh, you know uh, banking <laughs> but but the you know facilitation or being a facilitator isn't isn't one of the more defined prominent professions to get into has how has your experience been like that does your family understand what you do um <laughs> i think they do um and but but yeah like even like my job now is not facilitator um and none of my paid jobs have been facilitator but it's been a role that i've lent into no matter what job i've been in um and so at the moment i'm paid to do organizational strategy um internal processes and learning i suppose um and facilitation is weaved throughout that if i tell my parents what i'm doing i probably tell them i'm doing strategy right right and that the organization asks me to do training as part of that so i probably use the training word as well mm. um implied in your question was that people was an assumption that maybe people need to understand what you're doing in order to support you and for me i don't find that's the case i i i'm quite self confident i know what i'm doing and a lot of my support comes from people that have no clue what i'm doing <laughs> most of my support systems are people outside of the political sphere outside of activism uh drinking friends my wife um people that are not that interested in the job that i'm doing that's okay yeah absolutely like like a lot of things in life you know where one doesn't really need that social sanction i think uh, we all want to feel supported um yes. and accepted but uh, i think the pursuit of social sanction is just sometimes which is just endless and one i i personally would rather just spend time on just doing what i got to do yeah in um i suppose in activism also you don't have to spend all of your time persuading everyone of what you're doing there's there's a certain amount of um media work and public narrative to get people to support your work but not everyone has to be on the front lines of a protest with you in order for change to happen um and you can go where the energy is you can find your people um and a group of 10 people can be powerful mm. and and speaking of this kind of space uh you know which is really activism uh Danny I'm also curious that if you look at just a lot of things that are happening around the world at this point you know uh, some of it further amplified by covid-19 for example but then there there there's also just a lot of you know economic crisis and political crisis and uh you know the kind of things that we are experiencing happening far away but but it is still so close those experiences for example what's unfolding in afghanistan at this point you know so uh and you know for example when uh you know a large part of my work currently is with women 
But I know that when I'm working with women, I can't uh, do that in isolation because even climate issues affect women, uh, right? Uh, Public infrastructure issues affect women. Uh, So when you're in a space like this, what does everything that's happening around the world mean for you? Like, how do you process some of that? And do you like at some point get tired and, you know, and kind of maybe even get angry and, you know, get frustrated or, or, you know, uh, do you find, uh, you know, different sources of inspiration? Talk a little bit about that, please. Mm. I, yes, it's difficult. And at the moment can be really overwhelming. Um, It can be, especially the past five years, a lot of activists have been burnt out by what's happening and this feeling of pushing a rock up the hill or rather pushing 100,000 rocks up a hill as 10 people, it can feel like this. Um, I think there are are ways I deal with it. Um, One is I move between being um, hurt by something and studying it, which is two ways of being. Like I can f- be in a space where I'm feeling these things happen, especially climate seems to have this effect on me, probably because I associate it with my younger days of activism, but this feeling of being overwhelmed and hurt by something, and I can sit there. And I think I've developed a way of also being able to step back from it and study it and find it fascinating. And that's just a different part of the brain and just a different way of looking at it. And if I'm able to move between those things, um, then I know that I have some resilience. Um, It's actually the same thing with activism, right? Like, I can be an activist. And when I was younger, I definitely was an activist much more. Um, Or I can study activism and help other people to become activists. Um, which to me is more rewarding and fills my heart more and my energy levels more um, and might be more of my place as well. Um, so, so just that ability to step between the different roles is how I deal with this stuff. Other people have very different ways. Um, something that seems to be really important is community uh, and not feeling like you're dealing with something alone and that you can have a group of 10 people on WhatsApp that are all going towards the same thing and someone can just take a month off if they want. (laughs) That feeling is really important. Most activists don't do that. They just keep going and going. But like having the safety of that group can be really important. Um, Other things people do is some people find focusing on one specific thing, like first I will change this and then I will change this. Some people find that really empowering. Um, and also like it gives them the sense that victory is possible so that they have strength to go to different battles after that. Um, some people find that very empowering and some people actually don't. And they, they find that focusing on one thing makes them blind to the, the rest of things that are happening, the system. So I think it's very personal, um, very different for different people. Mm. And then I'm also very curious that in that journey, therefore, because uh, especially when the space is, and I, I actually feel that you could be a facilitator in any context, at some point it does get 
uh, filled with a little bit of fatigue, um, you know, because you are investing so much in people and even the act of listening is a very, uh, very uh, demanding task. Right? You're, you're listening to people constantly. Uh, what are some things that, you know, you do to be able to sharpen your craft? And when I say sharpen your craft, uh, there's, of course, the skills piece, right? But but there's so much of you, the individual in this. So there's the individual, then there's the skill. How do you, and in your journey, when you when you started this work, how did you build those skills? How did you build that craft? Because uh, unlike most other career paths, this is not so much of a space where you can go and get a formal education or a, or a degree or there are, there are training experiences one can accumulate. So um, if you could speak a little bit about that also. Yes, I, I never like, as you say, I've never attended a formal training in how to facilitate. Um, I think those sessions could be really good. I would like to go to them. Um, but personally, I've never... I've never done a diploma in this or, or training or anything like this. Um, I, I've gradually moved towards it through experience um, or, or experiences, I want to say, um, through watching other people facilitate um, and through a lot of failing and reflecting on why things failed. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that's the path I've been on. I think the only thing I consciously do is I always turn my brain to its learning point. Hang on. I always make my brain be in a learning mode, um, no matter what I'm doing. And, and, and changing the thought from I'm going into this with a goal to I'm going into this to learn what works and what doesn't helps me to always be improving and noticing things much more than going towards a goal. Um, um, yeah, that's not a very specific answer, but like that's the truth of how I feel that I've done this. I've never had a formal mentor or even an informal one, and I've never really seeked out one. Um, I have people that have inspired me at different stages and I have friends that I go back to for advice um, quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I've never kind of seeked out that relationship with a, with a mentor to do that. I think it'd be really useful, but it just hasn't happened to me so much. Mm. And the, the, the other thing is that like you can learn as much from watching someone fail to facilitate as watching a hero facilitator. Um, and, and so that's why I've kind of resisted the mentor thing. I think I can learn a ton. Like if, if I sat in a room with Nadia from the first episode, for example, I would just be, my brain would be open the whole time and I would be learning so much. I think she's excellent. <laughs> from that, that's the only episode I've um, listened to, by the way. Um, but also like watching people go into a space and take up too much room is is an insightful thing. Watching how people close down spaces, um, watching how um, people become bored 
during sessions is like just as instructive, I think, as watching someone really good at facilitating. Mm. You mentioned failing a few times, uh, Danny. Did you have? Do you have one of your favorite moments of failing? Uh, and you know, I want you to know that in episode two, when I, you know, I was into interviewing uh, Vishwas, who was our guest, um, and you know, he says that there's nothing called a mistake. There is a moment where we are not thinking. Mm. There's a moment we are not thinking, and he says the mo- when you frame it that way, you're able to look at what you need to do differently, what you need to do better versus, oh, I've made a mistake. Uh, so I'm very curious, do you have a favorite moment of failing? Uh, and more than the that, that moment of failing, who did you become from that experience? You have some really smart friends, Shalini, it sounds like. Um, that's wonderful, framing something like that. Um, yeah, loads, like... Um, yeah, there, there are tons of moments where I've stepped into a facilitation role and it's failed in some way. Um, uh, an example might be um, early on when I was doing climate activism, I wouldn't have said I was facilitating a group. I would say I would have said I was facilitating a meeting. I was the person in charge of the agenda or something, but... I was in a facilitation role, right? Um, and I remember it was late at night in a hostel somewhere in Germany. We were at a UN meeting. Um, there were lots of people from different countries around the world, all young climate activists. And we were trying to decide um, on a slogan for our campaign. Like, what will negotiators stuffy negotiators at a UN meeting respond to um, that will make them listen to our message. Um, And everyone was really tired. (laughs) Everyone was completely knackered um, in quite a hot hostel at the time. Half the people hadn't eaten. um, And I was responding to that energy by force. So the more I saw people were bored and disengaged, and switching off, the more I upped my own personality and it became a performance. So I remember this. I also remember getting frustrated and being so focused on getting to the outcome that I started to introduce my own ideas Um, and even lobbying for my own ideas. I remember in the break, going around people to people saying, what do you think of this idea? Okay, can you agree with that idea when when it comes up again? so like the meeting was a success in that we chose an outcome, but the campaign was a disaster. It was a terrible message. Um, it didn't get through at all. And it was abandoned like within a second of it not working. Um, I remember one of my friends at the time who was in the space, um, who I was, I was learning a lot from, uh, pointing out to me that I acted like a negotiator would <laughs> at that time. It was kind of a harsh thing to say. It hurt me a little bit, but it was a good learning moment for me. And that's true. I I was facilitating a space and I acted in a way to build power for my own idea through that space. If I look back on that, like, I, I, I kind of think, if what would I do now? 
I think I would go to dinner with everyone, right? I would cancel the meeting, get food in and some beers and not have any agenda. And that would build more power and more resilience and community than trying to decide on a campaign slogan that we ended up not using. You know, and, and that uh, takes me back to this conversation. Uh, you know how sometimes you're facilitating. One is I want to say that when, uh, when sometimes I use the word facilitation, I am also, I, for example, I believe all managers in an organization are also constantly facilitating, They're facilitating spaces for their teams. Or let's say if somebody is in advocacy, they are also facilitating a certain kind of thought process out there in the world. Uh, so, uh, and therefore, you know, perhaps facilitation becomes a sequence of experiencing, reflecting, and then being able to do things differently. Uh, but, you know, what you said, which is being attached to outcomes, and I have often noted that about my own self, that, uh, you know, so in my early stages, even today, actually, sometimes, I mean, today I'm I'm smart, I may not say it out loud, but I think it in, in my heart, which is sometimes when I finish a session or a process and and then, you know, if I'm not feeling too good about it, like, so there's one, a sense of did it land? Like, did it land where it had to land? But the other one is, uh, this didn't go where I wanted it to go. And then I had to think about, but is this about me? You know, is this about my agenda, my needs? Uh, uh, you know, how does one engage with that kind of a dilemma? Because you know that sometimes, uh, and you know how sometimes if you've been running an activity many times and 80% of the time, it has always gone in a certain way, like the group. So it's very predictable. You know, the group has done some things, you know, okay, this is what's going to happen. And then I'm going to debrief it and things like that. But then there's a 20% of the time when a group does something entirely different. So now yes. you've lost the, you know, the, the debriefing that you're used to, uh, you know, uh, in India, like sometimes we say that, uh, you know, uh, I didn't get that masala. You know, like I didn't get the spice out of this uh, uh, to debrief, debrief it enough. So this whole attachment to outcomes, because outcomes are important in learning processes, right? That's how we know, okay, that's my North Star. And that is that is where we, we want to go together. But then being attached to outcomes can just change everything, you know, including like the facilitator's presence. Could you respond to that a little bit? Like not in terms of, it should not happen because it's natural. It will happen uh, to all of us. Um, yes, yeah, so much. I feel hungry after you talk about the masala. <laughs> yeah, so much. Um, some of it is just that we're attached to the wrong outcomes <laughs> and that an outcome of facilitating a space um, might not be that the group comes up with a campaign at the end or uses a skill. The outcome might be something more like um, the group feels more connected to each other. They feel more able to um, able to challenge power. Or and therefore, a breakdown in the group and then the group deciding they're going to do something different to what you expect might be a positive thing um, for that particular outcome rather than the one that you had in mind for them. Um, 
so yeah, this happens a lot. Like, um, and as a facilitator, it's I think about being brave enough to to see, well, being insightful enough to see how like how has this gone wrong? Has it gone wrong? <laughs> Who's saying this has gone wrong? And what are the positive things that are coming out of this conflict or this challenge? Um, and then being brave enough to say we're going to scrap the agenda and go with this energy. There's something really hard to do, <laughs> especially as everyone has time constraints. Um, but it's where I've seen the most powerful things happen. My friend, my colleague at work, um, tells a story of um, a. I think I'm going to butcher the story um, because I'm retelling it. But I think it's a U.S. embassy that comes to their country and does training in activism skills with lots of high-profile speakers. Um, and on the second day of this, the group goes to the room um, and changes the chairs from facing the front to a circle. And then when the speaker comes, they stand up, take the microphone themselves and declare that everyone's met overnight and we're going to change the agenda because we're not getting from this what we want to get from it. And that's such like a surprising and also empowering story. Um, I would love to be the facilitator of that and feel this kind of, yeah, like this challenge to me uh, and then to be able to go with that and go with that energy. Wow. I would love to be in that room too. Absolutely. Amazing, right? Yeah. And, and that that's an example of, like, if your goal is to have an empowered group, I mean, gosh, that's an empowered group that takes the microphone and changes everything. Um, it, it also makes me think, I, I, I've never quite got to this, but I always want to, like, almost design elements of coups into training. Like, can I design an element where the group will feel so empowered that they will take the microphone and, and change things? Can I, like, manipulate little <laughs> times where I'll introduce a rule that's really unfair or something just to see if the group will be brave enough to step up and do this and what will happen from that feeling? Um, so, yeah, but that's still a dream. I haven't quite managed to do that yet. <laughs> Wow, that that is a great story. Uh, on a, on a random question, are you the facilitator who likes uh, your group to sit in a circle? Um. Yes, I I think it's the best shape that we have <laughs> for power dynamics. Um, but I'm not stuck on the circle. I, I'm definitely as much as possible against the rows of people looking at a PowerPoint slide. Um. And therefore, circle's helpful. But, like, that doesn't mean always circle. Because um, there's problems with the circle as well. Um, the circle can give a, um, a feeling of equality that doesn't actually exist. Um, and it can also lead to go-rounds, where everybody has an equal time on the mic that leads to a very long time um, of people speaking and some people feeling pressured to speak when they don't have to. So there are problems with the circle, but it's a good starting point. Wow, that's a very interesting way to look at that. I think I learned something new in that tiny little moment. So thank you for that. Uh, Danny, what I'd like us to do is, uh, you know, actually this coming week, the coming two weeks is entirely dedicated to this idea of safe learning spaces. 
and we are exploring different dimensions of safety and group safety in learning spaces. Um, in in uh, one of our previous episodes, we've already tried to unpack uh, how safety is not the absence of challenge or uh, discomfort. You know, um, safety is what happens despite it. Uh, what happens despite the discomfort and challenge. Uh, we have explored the idea of, in the third episode, we explored the idea of do no harm uh, more in the context of as a facilitator and also as an organization. Sometimes when you're facilitating a certain constituency, the, you know, the, the guiding principle being do no harm because good is very subjective. So we've explored different dimensions of safety. And uh, just when we had started this conversation, uh, you know, it was interesting for me because you came up with this whole idea of what does safety mean when one is working in the space of challenging, regressive, oppressive systems. Uh, so what I'd like us to do is, uh, you know, talk about that uh, and, you know, unpack that a lot because then that kind of helps us elevate this conversation on safety. I'll tell you where I'm coming from is when I had inherited and I say inherited very consciously when I had inherited the idea of safe learning environments uh, you know in the very early stages I took it as no one should be angry no one should be unhappy no one should be sad and uh, you know uh, and, and I, I it took me a while to move from there because uh, it, you know I, I figured that you know, learning can only happen when there is an experience of disequilibrium. And disequilibrium comes only sometimes when things kind of shake up a little bit, you know. Uh, uh, and that experience makes one reflect and go, you know, travel inwards or start listening to the person next to one with a lot more attention and uh, empathy. Uh, and sometimes, you know, all, all learning processes involve conflict, not just conflict between individuals, but also there's conflict of values, there's conflict of agendas, there's conflict of context. Uh, and uh, one of the many other things that I have had to uh, actually let me park that part of the conversation, which is really these, you know, when you're working with groups from diverse social cultural contexts some things are taken very differently in different cultural contexts. So I'll, I'll come to that a little bit later, uh, but I would like us to explore the idea of safety when we are largely designing experiences, inviting members to you know, uh, challenge oppressive, regressive systems. I would say safety is um, s safety is is that people like no one that is in the space um, is feeling they have to run away from things or um, close up in order to protect themselves. Um, I, I, and and I wouldn't even say everyone. I would say the balance of the community is most people are feeling that they don't have to protect themselves or flee a situation. 
Um, I think there's more to it than that, but but like the, as a facilitator, that's what I look at. Um, and I'm being hesitant here because I don't think safety. I think safety is fundamental, but it's not our aim as facilitators, especially in the activist space. And we can talk more about that. Um, but that's my terrible go at starting to define safety. Mm. That's actually great. I want us to unpack that part where you said, yeah. uh, as facilitators, that is not our aim. Uh, and I'd like you to unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Okay, so so firstly, like I'm a white male and uh, has lots of elements of intersection intersectional privilege happening. Um, I don't say that to be guilty, right? Just to be aware that I come from a particular space. So I'm not the right person to be talking about safety, right? If I'm ever facilitating something, I'll make sure I'm surrounded by people that know more about safety than me, have lived experience of being unsafe, um, etc. So I'm not really the right person to talk about it. There are definitely a lot of things that happen in a space to create safety where I'll be relying on others to inform me about that sort of thing. But when I say it isn't our aim, too much safety in activist spaces can make us inwards facing, um, focused on comfort and building our own sense of identity rather than challenging the oppressive systems that are out there and are unsafe. That the world is unsafe and we need to create a baseline of safety within our activist network so that no one is harmed. Um, but we we don't aim to create only safety in those spaces. We have to embrace some forms of conflict, um, forms of honesty and challenging each other, and then preparing ourselves to challenge the systems in the world. Wow, thank you. That was a very interesting way to look at that. And uh, it's what also stands out for me is how your identity uh, you know, has got you to look at safety in a certain way. Uh, and I, what, I'm, what I'm also very interested to know is, so I'll tell you a story. And the story is that, um, you know, there was a part of my career where I was, uh, you know, doing trainings for teachers. And we spoke about creative risk and we spoke about, you know, uh, building a very different kind of a learner and teacher relationship and you know we, we spoke about a more equal classroom and things like that and uh, you know the, tra- the that workshop got over and six months later I met a teacher from you know that workshop and she said you know you taught us all of these things you taught us creative risk and things like that and then I went back to my institution to try these things out and my institution just told me to not do any of that you know so, so what I realized is that, that, you know, the teacher actually went through a certain learning experience and then when they returned to their work with, you know, perhaps a new perspective or new way of looking at things, they were now in conflict with the system. They were in conflict with the institution because the institution wasn't ready for these changes. Uh, and therefore, you know, this whole element of a teacher also as, a, you know, an activist, as somebody who's a rebel, who's a protester, uh, came up quite a bit in that conversation. But then I also wondered, what does now safety mean for this teacher? Right? What, what does safety mean for this teacher? Yes. Uh, 
And, you know, going back to what you earlier said, while learning spaces could be safe, uh, and that is also perhaps the only place where a facilitator has some degree of influence, the living space out there in the world isn't necessarily safe for a lot of communities. Uh, So then does, you know, and what I'm trying to understand is how does... What, what is the interconnectedness between this? The, a safe learning space, but a real world out there which isn't really safe. Yes. Um, I mean, there's some sense of w- when you create the learning community, you are creating a space that's safe for people to fail and people to ask stupid questions, as, as I would call it, and... Like, like all of that is necessary for learning, like creating that sense of I'm not being judged here, everyone wins um, kind of outcomes. Um, but if we insulate that too much from the outside, um, then in the activism space, not necessarily the teaching space, um, then people will focus more on maintaining that status quo, that protection from the outside, than changing what's happening on the outside. Um, I had just to compare like two short examples um, of, of training events I, that I didn't facilitate, but um, I've been to. Um, one was a, a group of women in India um, who went to a training event felt empowered through the event, started to speak up. And then a speaker gave a traumatic story, an outside speaker. Um, and this, this led to trauma, people remembering trauma, um, people feeling unsafe. Um, and there was no one around trained in how to deal with that. So when I'm talking about creating conflict, no way am I talking about this. This is like a mistake. Um, and something that you deal with as a facilitator, right? Um, so it's not that that I'm talking about. A different story is recently I ran a retreat for a workspace um, and near the end of the retreat, um, two of the younger people at work um, felt good and empowered to tell their stories. And we thought this would be a good closer to like um, bring people back to why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and they told really, really powerful stories that made a lot of people cry and a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Um, part of their story was also a challenge to us to do better. Um, and in some ways that's similar, like it created an unsafe space. Um, and there are things I would have done differently there. I wouldn't have done it right at the end. I would have done it in the middle to create more space for people not to feel traumatized in some way from that. So there are lots of mistakes. But two months after that experience, I looked back at it and said, I'm glad that conflict happened. I'm glad people felt a bit unsafe. And I'm glad people, okay, that's a little (laughs) blase. I'm not glad people felt unsafe, but I'm glad that there was a sense of conflict and a sense of um, reproducing the the real world and the ways in which it's unsafe. and to me, like if we prioritize safety too much there, then whose safety are we prioritizing? Are we actually just prioritizing the comfort of people like me who go around the world feeling very safe all of the time? Mm. 
So it's something that I, you know, I'm trying to process uh, here, Danny. So, you know, uh, do we sometimes, you know, all discomfort, now whether it's triggered by a story or an experience, uh, a discomfort could be that moment of something shifting, something beginning to shift inside. But it's it's discomfort, so maybe it's also causing some level of pain. Yes. A safety is perhaps more of a violation, you know, a, a bodily, intellectual, social violation of sorts. It feels different. Um, how, how do we know, like, or do the lines blur between discomfort and an unsafe experience? Yes, <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> Um, I think when we're planning things, we want to keep them separate because we want to be very sure that we're not creating that violation type of um, unsafe environment um, or um, how, like some people would say um, replicating systems of oppression. That might be a wordy way of saying the same thing. Um, so when we're planning, we keep them very separate. We, okay, we definitely do this. We have these wellness things in place to create that sense of absolute safety. Um, and then the other stuff is different and you play with the risk. In reality, I think it's very blurry. Um, and it, it comes back to thinking deeply about it, about people's emotional journeys, involving other people with different lived experience to you so that they can look at the emotional journey and predict things that might happen. And then being brave as a facilitator and spotting spotting the conversations that happen in the breaks where people look like they're having a flea reaction or a closing up reaction and being able to find out what's happening and change, change your risk tolerance as you go. Um, I think there's a ton of ambiguity though and it's, it's risky. Mm. You spoke of how conflict you know, so I'm, I'm now wanting us to focus a little bit very specifically in context of activism. So we're designing learning experiences uh, in context of activism and activists. Uh, what is the role of conflict then in these learning spaces? There's, I, I mean, people, people that come to activist workshops and trainings are already experiencing conflict before they decide that they're an activist. Um, mostly they have an experience um, of injustice in the world and therefore there's conflict and there's all sorts of conflicts at home about whether to act on it um, or not and conflicts with friends. So people already bring this with them. Um, and then in my experience or when I say my experience, I mean, I often mean the experience of others and I'm observing other people doing this really well and better than me, right? But in that experience, um, I've seen that, like, first creating the, the individual empowerment journey, which is creating a sense of safety. It's okay to feel the conflict. The conflict can be useful in some ways. You can use your experience in order to wield power this kind of journey, this sense of confidence, my story, etc., is like a really foundational thing at first. It doesn't have to be too much conflict in that particular journey. Um, but that's not enough. Creating confident people who can tell their story 
is good but not good enough for activism. You also need to layer on top of that community. People need to act together. And then on top of that, they can't just be a community that's safe. They have to challenge power in some way, in an external way. So those two layers in particular, you have to go through through experiences of conflict. Usually the community one is the most safe space to do it in. First you create trust and then you start to allow conflict within that community um, and see how the community deals with it and usually coming out stronger as a result of that conflict. So that's good. Um, getting people to used to conflict, how to resolve conflict within themselves. Um, but it's still not good enough because then people will just create their own communities. Um, then you need to do the thing about um, wielding power and wielding conflict with people outside of your group. I don't know if this is the question that I want to frame, but I'm going to still frame it. When we, you know, in, in spaces of activism, when largely a learning process is designed to, um, you know, uh, to, uh, I don't know, is the word empower or is that word invite people to step up to power so that they can challenge power? Uh, what does it look like? Uh, you know, what does... What is that invitation or what is that learning experience uh, that gets people to step up to power to be able to challenge uh, power and discrimination around them? What does that mean? Do you mean what it, what does it look like practically in a in a training session or okay, let, let's let maybe start with what does stepping up to power like what does participants? in a learning process, stepping up to power mean? What does that look like? Yes. Um, so before I got into activism, I might have imagined it as um, building confidence to become a public spokesperson uh, and then being someone like a Greta Thunberg or something, speaking truth to power, right? Um, and there's some elements of that you train people in how to do that, but also bring them on the journey of self-belief. Um, but actually, quite a lot of it is um, about challenging people to go deeper in their analysis of power, I think. Um, or creating spaces for the group to do that with each other. So quite a lot of people go on a journey from, for example... Um, I um, experienced some form of oppression and um, I want to rebel against that in some way. I want to break free of that. Um, and my um, anger is directed at Donald Trump. Um, and often the journey people go on to stepping up to power is being able to break that down and to be clear about Yes, they are part of that system of power and they enable that system of power. Um, but um, there are so many other things going on. There are things within the family. There are things within the community. There are things at school that happen. There are narratives that the media um, regurgitate again and again. Um, there are systems of who gets resource and who doesn't. Um, and like creating space for people to go from one narrative, which is like the 
hero and villain narrative to this analysis of how the whole system interacts to form this oppression, I think is really important. And like, there's still an element of the hero journey, being able to stand up and speak um, and protest. But alongside that, that kind of deeper journey of going into all of the different things, I think is really important. Um, Because as a group, then you find really specific ways of dismantling that and saying, why does this media person keep regurgitating this narrative? And what influence do I have on that? Do I have influence on the advertisers? Do I have influence on the uh, social media presence? And there's like a lot more things you can do if you start breaking down the system. It can feel overwhelming as well, right? It can go from one thing, one huge thing to 10,000 small things, but that can also be very empowering. Mm, Interesting. And what is, what is this idea of a collective, you know, earlier, earlier, uh, when we started, you spoke of the learning process being uh, sort of an empowerment journey and, uh, the collective plays a very important role in that empowerment journey. Could you help us unpack that a little bit? Yeah, it's difficult because so much, so many stories of activism are about the individual and that's part of how, at least in the West, that's part of how stories are structured. From my previous work, I understand in India as well, but not, for example, in Thailand, um, would have this kind of individualized story. So, so many stories of activists are the same thing. Martin Luther King faced this oppression, stood up and spoke and did this. It's like very oversimplified. Um, And often that's still presented to us through um, technology that we use, through media, etc. So there there is some role of the inspirational activist that is really useful. These people inspire, um, they form really compelling stories, um, and they can hold a lot of individual power as well. Um, But a lot of the, like, a lot of the actual change comes from groups working together and communities working together and building collective power, which can be as simple as a group of 10 people on WhatsApp um, discussing tactics with each other and how they're going to support each other, or can look like a movement of people, of hundreds of thousands of people that identify in a particular way um, and create an inevitable momentum of change. And does that collective become a source of safety or does that... collective become the source of conflict or does that collective become just a container for safety and conflict to exist together what does that collective mean in context of safety it means both right it's people activists often describe it as feeling like a family Um, and that means different things to different people obviously but obviously within that is a sense of safety of my people and purpose, um, but also complexities of a lot of diverse people with different backgrounds coming together and trying to work together and going through the messiness of of that. Um, What I think we find um, makes the most difference um, is not the sense of individual belief I can feel not confident in my own abilities to make change, 
But if I see people around me and I think this group is powerful and could create change, that has a big effect on whether that group ends up winning things. So I think, yeah, the, to me, the collective is more important than the individual in this stuff. Um, in activist speak, you would talk about organizing as a word, like, um, like how are people able to um, bring people together and organize around a cause and keep them focused on a particular cause. And this is a type of facilitation as well. In an activist space, how do we know that we've reached a level of safety? Um, so a couple of things. Um, people, um, people are socializing <laughs> is the top one, right? People actually in the breaks are talking to each other and talking to people that they didn't come with is a good um, indicator. Um, people are setting, not just setting, so, so people have goals that they feel comfortable articulating to the group, but more so people have power-related goals that they're comfortable. So there's a difference between someone, like as a facilitator, you never set people's goals for them, they set their own goals, right? But there's a difference between saying someone saying, my goal is to... Um, heal the sick or my goal is to um, get a job as an activist and someone saying um, my role is to um, unseat this governor <laughs> or my role is to change the way um, the media um, talk about adoption uh, or something like this and, and embedded within those goals is an understanding that there's a power dynamic even if the understanding is just simple, someone has power, someone doesn't, that's embedded in some way. There's two things, people are socializing, people are comfortable articulating their goals without judgment, power-based goals without judgment. Um, and then I would say like, that final one I always look for is people are comfortable challenging the facilitator, <laughs> like we talked about earlier. Um, and comfortable doing that collectively um, would be an indication of safety that they trust the facilitator that they're giving them feedback in that way that they are able to organize together in order to give that kind of feedback that's three examples I think there's a ton of different things you could look at in between but that's some examples mm. one of the interesting responses I've had when I've asked a similar question to someone yeah. now has also been when as a facilitator, they are able to experience the group uh, very confidently and respectfully disagrees. And yeah. you know that, that becomes a way to gauge the, the level of safety that has been built in the community. Uh, yeah. So I think these are very, very interesting frames of safety. Absolutely. And, and um, people put music on at, in the evenings. Right, this kind of thing is is good indication of saying people dance. Like people not dancing is not an indication of this being safety, but people often dance in the evenings if if they're feeling safe. Yeah, um, in a way they begin to make the space their own. 
So yes. whether it's moving chairs around or whether it's putting music, they begin to make their space their own. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the, the workshop venue becomes the space that they feel a sense of connection and belonging to and, uh, and therefore begin to take the liberty to influence it in a way that it makes it joyful, uh, you know, and, and meets the needs. So absolutely. Uh, Dai, I want you to, uh, so let's just say there are people who are trying to say, how can I become a facilitator, very specifically in context of activism world or change-making world? What would you have to say to them? I would say um, to firstly go out there and join some campaigns. Um, if you've never been involved in a group of people who are campaigning or trying to influence something, then there's ample opportunity to go and do it. Go and join a local group uh, advocating for bicycle lanes or go and join a global climate movement or whatever you're really passionate about. Go and join those groups and experience them and understand how the dynamics work. Um, and then there are plenty of opportunities for facilitation within there and lots of opportunities to try and make mistakes and do things in small groups. Um, I probably wouldn't say search for a job in facilitation. I, I don't know if they exist. They, I think there's some, but it's very rare that you would find a job in facilitation in the activism space. Um, but there are people that definitely hold those roles um, and they, they get there through the activism journey and then either staying within the voluntary groups or joining paid roles. There's a couple of different journeys there. Maybe another thing is just like be like be really open to experience and have a commitment to learning. Like challenge yourself, go to places you're uncomfortable, um, go to join groups of people that don't look like you and sound like you, people that are maybe asking for different things that you would ask for um, and just immerse yourself and be open-minded and learn. Awesome. Eat food, eat lots of food with people. Yeah, absolutely, 100%, which is where some of the best conversations actually happen. They are in the corridors or over a lunch meal for me. If we look at someone's individual journey from feeling frustrated um, at the world to stepping up to power, um, there's a few steps along that way. Um, those would include... Um, being able to look at the power dynamics in that frustration, who has influence over who, who is acting upon me, and then what power do I have? And then a developing belief in myself, my ability to do that through my skills, etc. but more so a belief in the people around me, um, a belief in the collective, there's a couple of steps in being able to reflect and learn on your actions, um, becoming strategic, expertise, etc. But the real barrier at the end of all of that is doing something public and demonstrating something publicly. 
And so stepping up to power is about like building your own belief, building your community. But if we were measuring whether someone has stepped up to power or not, and they built all of that self-belief, built all of that community, their skills, etc., but they hadn't done something at the end that's public, then it has is not stepping up to power. So that public thing, like that, can seem a bit scary, but to me, that just means something outside of yourself. That could be as simple as emailing um, an assistant that works at a government office, not even the MP. That could be um, writing a letter to your school. That could be um, making a social media post on a page um, to challenge a perception of something. Um, or that could be going out to a protest, talking to your friends um, about what you're going to be doing. Um, they, there's lots of things, but it has to be outside of yourself. There's a big internal journey, but to step up to power, you have to do something that is demonstrating that internal journey outside of yourself. Got it. Now I get that. And that's super clear. So thank you so much for that. And we actually like did, that's a learning we have through trying to measure this stuff. Like, we measured like a ton of this, this stuff before you were part of this journey, I think. Okay, do we measure this? Do we, what makes the most difference? And again and again, we found people that were super empowered, but not campaigners. <laughs> they were really empowered, but they would go and get jobs somewhere uh, or, or, right, or do something, consultancy. Uh, and then they're not campaigners because they haven't done the public demonstration of their campaign in some way. Um, okay. So, Danny, I am going to toss some words at you. And I'd like you to think of all of these words in context of facilitation and design and designing okay. learning experiences and just respond to that. This might go very wrong. <laughs> I'm fully aware of that. So. <laughs> you can edit out any swearing. <laughs> um, okay, you're ready for your first word. Okay. Intentions. So what am I meant to do? Say, say is this a free association game? Am I saying any word that comes back to you when you say intentions or am I defining or what am I doing here? You're responding to it. So I'd like you to wear your facilitator's hat, somebody who's involved in one way or the other in designing learning experiences for activists. So you're wearing that facilitator's hat. And so therefore, when you hear these words, what comes to your mind? Okay. Yep. So for intention. Intentions. What comes to my mind is setting learning questions, um, which is an artificial way of forcing people to set their intention going into a space so that instead of going in passively and thinking afterwards, what did I learn from that? They're going in thinking, I'm going to pay attention to things that help me to answer this question. Awesome. Well done on that one. So we'll move okay. to the second one. Uh, spontaneity. <laughs> um, this makes me think of online facilitation. And online facilitation, more so than physical one, is a performance. And I find I become a caricature of myself. So recently I found that asking people to interrupt me um, or make it go wrong has really helped bring about spontaneity and laughter. And that actually helps the facilitation. 
So, for example, I've prepared online facilitation on post-it notes and stuck them on my screen ready. And just before I'm ready, they've all fallen off. And actually, this helped <laughs> much more than anything else. It helped uh, make the online facilitation more human. And it was a, a mess to start with and spontaneous, um, but it worked well. <laughs> Structure. This makes me think of um, over-preparing and then holding things lightly um, as a facilitate. People do this differently, but I personally over-prepare and think deeply about the dynamic at every stage of facilitating, um, even down to writing the words that I will spontaneously say and some of the jokes. <laughs> and then I will let go of it as soon as I pick up the microphone and forget it. Um, and I, I like that because you have a safety to land back on, but usually you don't need it and you can go and you've thought about things enough that it works. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that was an interesting one. Um, Learner-centric. I don't know what that means. <laughs> learner, center on the learner, right? Okay. Um, no, that doesn't doesn't spark anything for me. It it, it feels like a. Um, a pedagogy kind of word. I can't even say it, right? Pedagogy type of word, learner-centric. I mean, I get it. I get what it's trying to say, but it feels soulless as a word to me. It doesn't... I can't picture it. That's not a criticism of your word, Charlie. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's a reason that, that I asked this word because, uh, you know, in the, in the world of pedagogy, it has become like yeah. a jargon. So I'm always yeah. curious if people were to respond to it without, you know, thinking of jargons and, you know, the way the way it is defined in industrial parlance, what would that mean for different people? And I think a lot of times responses uh, being centered in experience or, you know, a design centered around the learner. That sounds brilliant, but I would challenge the word and I would say anytime anyone says learner centric, replace it with someone's name. Right, as much as you can say, okay, I want to be Shalini Cedric in this particular thing. I want to think about this person with their name. Mm, interesting. And once I had a response which said, uh, so I said learner centric, and the other person said learner led. Ah, that was interesting. That's, that's a great reframing. <laughs> yeah. And the last one that I want to talk about is uh, the last word that I want to give you is empowerment. <laughs> this is a favorite topic of mine. I could uh, do you have another hour? <laughs> okay, empowerment um, is frequently misdefined, <laughs> misunderstood. Um, empowerment is not about my individual confidence, um, empowerment um, is, um, yeah, it, the, the word empowerment actually like, involves several things, including self-belief, community belief, um, and also all of the structures around me that stop me from wielding my power. All of the disempowerment is 
as much part of that word as the empowerment word. Um, and this is where a lot of the self-help stuff goes wrong, right? In thinking it's just about yourself and your own actualization. Um, I can feel very empowered and confident and um, still live in an oppressive system and have no money. And therefore, am I empowered? No, I'm not empowered. Um, so empowerment is about being able to wield your power. Um, and that's really complicated. <laughs> my response. Thank you. Actually, I should have asked you this question right up front so that I could give you an entire hour to talk about it. <laughs> well, we talked about it a lot. I think we talked about power a lot, right? And yeah, what that means. Mm. Danny, thank you so much for this conversation. I I learned there were there was a few moments of aha for me. Uh, you know, especially my favorite moment of the conversation was, uh, you know, uh, safe learning spaces, but the real lived experience out, out there in the world, uh, and you know, having to challenge uh, systems of power, uh, and therefore the kind of unsafe experiences that come with it, and. I think there's there's something still there or uh, in between that, and I'm I'm going to personally explore that a lot more because I feel this I'm I'm about to learn something new there. The more I do a little bit more inquiry into that, I think so. It it is the sort of thing where people much smarter than me, um, including yourself, could actually get somewhere with that point. <laughs> so I've done my job of provoking a question, but I'm as usual not the person to answer it. Well, that's what facilitators, uh, you know, some of, some of the best facilitators around me do. They ask good questions and get people to think around them. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for this conversation because I think, uh, um, you know, before I kind of started tinkering with the space of campaigning, uh, I wasn't really sure about a lot of things. I still am not sure about a lot of things, but that's okay. And I think this conversation is a very, uh, you know, a refreshing conversation in context for someone who is trying to uh, take their facilitation career in spaces, you know, like activism, in like change making. Um, and uh, and I, I think just knowing that they're not alone with their ideas and questions and fears and anxieties, I think that's really a very uh, empowering experience. So actually... Um, Danny, thank you so much for this absolutely beautiful conversation. Um, thank you. 